data to me is this object. So maybe I'll start by just talking about its relationship to people, which I care about much more than I care about data. I think data is a means to an end. And I think that we live in this world, right, where the people who have access to data and the people who have access to understanding data have this enormous power. Wouldn't it be amazing if more people, if everybody had access to a whole bunch of data? And I think the future of people is that more people will have access to understanding it and analyzing it and leveraging it to have some form of power. And so I think the future of people with data is just that more people will understand it and will have the availability to access it and use it and leverage it and to change the world in their own ways. How are we doing out there, folks? This is your host with the most, Kenny Vaughn. The dynamic trio is assembled once again. Ladies, would love to introduce yourselves to the listeners. The dynamic trio. We love it. What is up, everyone? It is Soap. And welcome back to the Breakline Arena. Well, Soap and Kenny, thank you so much for having me back. This is Bethany Coates, and I am delighted to be here. Ladies, let's not waste any time. Let's get straight to it. Bethany, can you introduce this gentleman to our listeners? You will do a much more gracious job than I will. Please tell the folks about Satyan. Well, we just had the pleasure of interviewing Satyan Sangani. He is the founder and CEO of a company called Elation, and they connect people with the data that they need. And he was such a joy to interview. And there's so many different stories that we could tell. I don't want to steal the thunder of the podcast, but one element that I really appreciated about Satyan was that he didn't pretend that it was easy mm-hmm. or or straightforward. <laughs> you know, he really talked about how complex it is and how much courage it takes and how much resilience and grit that's involved in starting a company. And I thought he also spoke in really moving terms about his personal tribe, his wife, his his parents, his wife's parents, people who really showed up for him when he needed them most in this moment of embarking on a brand new journey with building this company. Sophia, how about you? Because, you know, I got I got copious notes on this and from my end. What did you take away from the conversation? <laughs> of course. Well, he actually describes this this one um, instance, and I also don't want to steal the thunder of the podcast, but he took a gap year. He was volunteering in Mumbai. He was really serving other people in India when he was considering a career in development economics, and he, he was working with orphans. And what he learned is that he didn't like it. He didn't want to be there. He would have rather have done and been an entrepreneur. And really by giving himself the grace to, to say, you know, I tried it. It looks good on paper. It sounds good when I tell other people, but it's not for me. Really, my passions are elsewhere. He was he allowed himself to be so authentic and really moved himself towards living a really fulfilling life. So I was really inspired by that. Mm, the importance of running your own race when finding your purpose. I think it was so important. I love that part of the conversation. You know, I gotta brag on the husbands and the fathers and Mm. the family members out there because 
In order to build this tremendously successful company and be a part of a power couple, which he is, and mm. then to talk about wanting to be a good husband and a great father, mm. you know that resonated with me. And so I really loved the deliberate nature in which he shared those priorities um, during this conversation. And then also, he's just building a badass company. Like, let's I mean, go. I mean, <laughs> it's Series D. Elation is crushing it right now. And just to see how he's thinking about the ability to democratize the use of data and make it something that's not intimidating and make it something that we as individuals can leverage to better our lives. I think it's just a really cool mission and I'm so, so glad that he swung through the arena to share his story. The last thing I wanna say Plug is it, we Kenny. gotta give a shout out to Plug the it. Data Radicals podcast, which he will be hosting. You can find it on your streaming platforms and services, so you know we gotta do a little bit of co-branding here. Mm -hmm. uh, but just so grateful for the time they took to come spend some time with us here in the Breakline Arena. So I don't know about you ladies, but maybe we should go ahead and give the listeners what they came here for. I'm buckling up. I'm ready for this ride. We're strapping in. We will see you guys <laughs> on the other side. See you there. Satyan, thank you so much for carving out the time and space to be with Breakline as well. We're just delighted to have you. Thank you for having me. And I want to kick it off. You co-founded Alation about 10 years ago, and I'd love to start the conversation with that story. You were at Oracle and you just kind of knew that you were supposed to be an entrepreneur, but it was actually a pivotal conversation with your wife that sort of gave you, kind of prompted you to, to start the process. I'd love for you to bring us back to that point and, and talk to us about what happened, what you were thinking about the conversation with your wife and, and how you got the company off the ground in those early days. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, it's not, I'm not sure that I did know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. My father was an entrepreneur and he had a lot of ups, but he also had a lot of downs. And so I think I never looked at that path as one that I would want to pursue. But of course, I always acted like an entrepreneur. So I'd go around and I'd have ideas and some of them would be half-brained and my college friends would make fun of me because they would be, you know, seeing me and they'd be like, there goes something again with a new idea. And so I had all these ideas and I always thought that I could do something different or, or, or better. And so I'd look at the world with all these uh, different lenses. And then one day I was at Oracle and was particularly frustrated because, you know, Oracle, like any other big company is a place where there's process and, you know, things don't happen as easily as you might want if you're trying to innovate. And, you know, I was frustrated. So I get out of this meeting and I start complaining as I normally would. And my wife comes up to me and says, you know, you're going to leave your job. I'm like what? She's like, you're going to leave your job and you're going to start a company. And I'm like, what, what do you, what do you, why, why would I do that? And she's like, well, I'm not going to be married to this bitter old man who I like have to sit next to and who always wishes that they did something and never did. And so, you know, true to her word, she like basically ended up, uh, you know, we got, we got on a path where we could buy a house and, you know, and then at that time have two kids. And then once we did those two thing, things, basically uh, I, I got to take my wings and go foundation. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Satyan. I love that story. And sometimes we just, we need our spouses and our loved ones, our mentors, our coaches in life to hold up a mirror, remind, remind us of who we are and what we're capable of. And she did that for you in that moment. 
you all, you're a high powered couple. Your wife is a physician. And so it was a weighty decision for her too, because you were going all in on this startup and you all had to make some decisions as a family. Will you talk to us about those conversations where you all netted out and, you know, and how you navigate that, that give and take as, as a family and as a couple? Yeah, it was, I mean, I think it was a little bit, uh, one decision forced to the other. And so we decided that I would go start this company. And at the time that we decided that, we had to both dip into savings and relying upon her income in order to support the family. And we did that over time. And one thing led to another. And ultimately, we were able to raise a Series A and then a, you know, get the place to where I could have an income. And once we did that, I got so busy that once we had the boys and my career became so busy, it became fairly obvious that they would need one of us to be there. And while I used to pick up the slack in the early days, you know, up until they were in grade school, I couldn't do so anymore. And so then she decided to leave her role as a pediatrician and now is still not working. But, you know, at some point we hope that we get her back to a career that's satisfying to her. Thank you. And will you talk to us about Elation now? What, what was the opportunity that you saw when you started the company and how have you and your team built toward, toward realizing the full potential of the company? Yeah. So I think to understand Elation, you'd have to understand data. So we're, you know, everybody talks about data and data is this really exciting and new and innovative thing. But if you think about what data actually is, it's basically recording things that are happening in the world around us, but it's doing so in this machine understandable or programmable programmer understandable way. And so often people's names are represented as numbers and um, things are abbreviated because that's efficient for computers to understand. But then once all this data is produced, you know, millions and millions of rows in it, documenting everything from every time you visit a website to every time a temperature is taken of the road on a Tesla, every single one of those bits of data um, then needs to get analyzed and somebody needs to understand that information. And it's really hard to understand that information. And so what Alation is, is basically a search engine, kind of like Google, but for data inside of companies. We basically crawl the web and of, of data within a company, and we will build this catalog of information. And so it looks and feels kind of like Amazon or Yelp, but for data. And so if you want to see data about profits, you can go to Alation and type profit data, and you can find all of the reports and all the data and the idea was that we could build this kind of searchable index of data knowledge in a company. And so that's what it is. What are some of the, I'd love for you to bring it to life a little bit more. What are some of the applications where, uh, that you see that are most powerful with Alation or, or the ones that you're most proud that you all have been able to, to bring to life? Yeah. So the vision of the company, the vision statement of the company, and we didn't know this the day we founded it, but I think we, we came up with a vision statement that was to empower a curious and rational world. And so our general view is, look, every single person has curiosity. Every single person has a desire to learn from the world around them. And, you know, we all come up with hypotheses for what we think is true and we have our biases. And so what we'd love to be able to all do is affirm that, or at least many of us would be able to do is affirm that in that, that thought with real data. And so how do you teach people to actually think about using data? And so in the very early days, one of my co-founders built a little tool that would allow people to use SQL much more easily and to interrogate a database much more easily. And so you could start typing 
SQL is like, you know, basically it's, you, you tell the database what you want from it, it brings it back. So you say, I want the customer data merged with the transaction data so I can get a list of all the transactions for these customers. Like that would be the example of what a SQL statement might say, but lots of people don't know SQL. And what we would do is suggest to them how to be able to phrase this language of SQL in a way that the database would accept. And so we would teach people how to use the data. And that early example, I think, set us on a path where most of our vision and most of what we're trying to do is just teach people, no matter where you are in life, if you've got no data experience, no programming experience to a very sophisticated data scientist, we want to teach people to use data. And that's kind of what is most gratifying to us is those examples where people can just learn from using the interface. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, Alation is a Series D company, so raised four rounds of capital. And it's it's sort of easy to look back and say, of course, you know, you all were destined for success. Could you share more about challenges that you faced up until this point? Any moments that were truly pivotal for the company's survival? Yeah, there's so many. I can I can think of three. I mean, in the very early days, it was super duper lonely. After I had left Oracle, I had no income and I had met with probably 70 some odd engineers looking for somebody to co-found this very technical endeavor with. And most of the people thought that my idea was pretty silly. And, you know, it wasn't obviously as formed as it is today. And so easy to think back then that this didn't make any sense and nobody wanted a data catalog and it wasn't even a thing. And I, frankly, I didn't even call it a data catalog at the time. So that was really hard because I would just basically go in and park myself at a desk of a VC friend, you know, firm and would just kind of like have days where there'd be one calendar item on the day and every single other moment I'd be spent surfing the web and researching. And that was hard, but got through that and, you know, then started to lead a team and I had no experience leading a company. And so the second experience I can remember is we had this really idealistic group of early people because, you know, we had this really idealistic vision and I, you know, having grown up in the enterprise and working at Oracle also knew that you had to feed the, you know, feed the group and you had to make money. And so at the, at the time, the opportunity that I saw was getting into this thing called data governance. And the entire team was like, oh, we, we can't get into data governance. We're all about search and discovery and we're all about analytics. And at the time, those were two different spaces, which now have converged into one space. But at the time, we didn't see that. And the team were, kind of said, no, we don't want to really do that. And it was funny because at that moment, it was a lesson in leadership for me that you can't you know, hire a team of visionaries and expect that they're going to leave and depart their vision. And it was really important for me to realize that as a, as a leader, I'm the steward of this thing and that I really needed to you know, always be really consistent with our customers and with our you know, team about where we were going and what we were doing. So that was a really tough moment because like I hadn't been a leader and my leadership was being challenged. And so I was learning there. And then maybe the third experience, which was probably maybe in some ways also really challenging was we had just raised our series B and I hadn't really ever gotten feedback as a leader. And I remember I did a 360 where we had basically had a whole bunch of folks give feedback about, you know, what I did and how I did it. And you know, everybody told me that I was a micromanager, that I didn't really know how to manage people. I didn't know how to set vision. I didn't keep people accountable really well. And it was a really big awakening for me to just evolve from being a founder and being my, having my hands in everything to being a CEO. And those hard moments were like in retrospect, like I grew through that, but at the time it wasn't really all that clear that I'd survive it. And yeah, I mean, but you know, you do, and you just keep on moving forward and you're thankful for those struggles. 
I, I love those stories, Satyan, and it reminds me, so Manny Medina, the CEO of Outreach, he told a story about not being able to pay for parking. He had to like park, you know, two miles away or something because he didn't have the five bucks. Matthew Prince, CEO of Cloudflare, said he had to borrow rent money from his mom. Ali Godzi, CEO of um, Databricks, talking about like being an academic and managing himself and all of a sudden stepping in as CEO. And, um, and you, you know, and you also mentioned this time, just you called it being super lonely. Will you talk to us? And then as you, as you wrapped up your comments, you said, you know, something like you just, you just have to persevere. Where did you draw the strength? Where did you draw the energy to, to push past those rough moments? Because we all face them in, in the context of our own lives. And I'm really curious where you found the resilience to push through. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I'd say two things. There wasn't really a choice. Like I had to do work and I had to try and I had 18 months and the bank account was going to go to zero. And so, um, you know, we did have some savings, so I didn't have to park two miles away, but, you know, we certainly weren't spending a lot. And I, and I think that was one big part of what drove me forward. I think the other part was just, you know, my own, my, my, my parents, I mean, it just gets back to your values. Like they, and, you know, particularly my mother, like they, they both just worked so hard. And I think in that very classic immigrant experience, you sort of see what they're able to survive off of. Not my parents, but my wife's grandmother used to go to hotels and save uh, the shampoo bottles because she would be able to use them to source spices. And, you know, that kind of like, you know, economy, that kind of like spendthriftness. I mean, I think that you just kind of learn that you can live in a lot of different ways and still be happy. And so I think seeing that model and just really not having a choice gave me two of the things to fall back on. Um, mm -hmm. I probably didn't know it at the time, but you know, mm -hmm. you just do more and you learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Many of the CEOs that I've interviewed for this speaker series are immigrants or first-generation American citizens, and they often will talk about that experience or their parents' experience as part of where they draw energy and courage and grit from. What, what did your parents think when you left this like very safe career path at Oracle to found the startup? How did they, how did they react to that? Um, I think that my, so my, my father, I think my father was like super excited. My father was an entrepreneur. And so I think he was, and you know, all the way up until he passed and was, he, he, you know, passed when he was 82 you know, was always trying new and different ideas. And like, even like in his late seventies was like, oh, I want to go start a new business. And you're like, dad, like you like can barely like, like get up in the morning at the right time. Like you, you're not starting a new business, but he always had that chutzpah and that sort of view. My mother was a little bit more guarded and conservative because I think she saw a lot of the trials and trails of it. And so, you know, she was a little bit more worried about like, you know, what that would mean and whether or not that would lead to happiness. But I think she was generally supportive because I think she knew who I was. So for the most part, supportive. I actually think the person that had the hardest time with it in some ways emotionally was my wife, Jigna, because, uh -huh. you know, as a pediatrician and as a doctor, like, you know, there's like very, you know, a very structured mindset to how do you approach your career and your family. And so on one hand, she's, you know, knowing what would make me happy. But on the other hand, she also, you know, had a very strong sense of order and of stability. And so I think she had the most challenging time with it. But I think, you know, but for her, it wasn't about the money. It was more just about like getting me out and doing, you know, making me allow, allowing me to realize what it would be to make myself happy. Mm -hmm. 
my um, it reminds me when I when I started Breakline, my husband and I bootstrapped it, <laughs> and there was definitely some some friction in his thinking because he was like, "I want you to do this thing," and I'm also really nervous. <laughs> our bank account, you know, going down. So you can, how did you navigate that? I mean, how did you, how did you, I mean, how did you navigate those conversations? Satin, you know, I, it was, um, he just could see that I was going to do it and I had to do it. And he was nervous. He was definitely nervous because I was giving up a, a secure paycheck like you and also drawing down our savings at the same time. But I think he, he just could tell that it was something I had to do. And he, while he was nervous, he was, he was not going to stand in the way. In fact, he was going to really support me. And we talk about it now and we can kind of laugh about it now, but man, it's, it's such a special thing to have people around you and loved ones around you who are going on this journey with you. You know, it's not like this is Satyan's thing that he's going to do on his own. You know, this is like a real impact for your wife as well. I just have so much respect for our partners who show up for us in these moments where they can tell it's just crucial for us to do it. It's not a nice to have. It's like, we have to do it. Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's, and I think it's particularly hard. I think in the Valley, I mean, if you think about the ethos of the Valley entrepreneurship is seen as the singular thing. And like this, this, you know, individual who's going to go out and change the world. And so from the external world, like I'm the person that's built this amazing company and, you know, it's my idea and it's my vision. And people ask me what my vision is and how did I do it? And, you know, behind the scenes, like none of that would have ever been even remotely possible had she not given me the permission and the strength throughout the journey to be able mm-hmm. to, to do it. And I think, um, you know, that's so, and so, you know, you get all the credit, but you don't, that that's not quite shared. And especially mm-hmm. when somebody, you know, both of our partners, it sounds like are, you know, people who are very accomplished in their own rights. And so it's, it, it's challenging. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I don't know how to navigate that stuff, but it's, it's, it, it is hard to not share that credit directly. Oh my gosh. Yes, I totally agree. And I think your commentary just reminds me of something that Josh Reeves say, which I've been saying a lot because it really hit home for me. He said, heroes don't scale, systems scale. And our system is, is our team. It's our team, of course, at work and with the businesses that we're building, but also at home. And, you know, and, and we're able to show up and fully express our potential because we have other folks around us working together to make that happen. Have you thought about that? Because because you as the CEO, you do get, of course, you get a lot of credit. You're out in front. You are the face of the company. And at home, Jigna has made that possible. And at work, your team has made that possible. How do you, how do you share in that success with them as, as part of your leadership? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, there's certainly the the material aspect, although I don't think that really makes up for a lot of it. I mean, I mean, the hard thing really, truly is that you, you know, it's hard to share in the, the, the recognition aspect of success, the social recognition aspect of success. And so I'm not quite sure we've even figured that out. Uh, you know, it's cer- certainly the case that, I mean, I completely agree with Josh and, and exactly what you said, which is that the, entire endeavor of building a company or building anything material uh, really is about just finding people who can help 
execute and get you towards this far off vision that you're trying to achieve. And you never can do it alone. Um, it's really mm-hmm. all about just like getting people along the path with you and walking it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you and your team have kickstarted something called the Data Intelligence Project. And this is something where Alation is offering its software free of charge to faculty and students at various academic institutions to contribute to a more data literate, curious and rational society, as you said. Will you talk about your inspiration for this and, and the impact that it's having so far? Yeah, well, so we started at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and one of the professors, Professor Haig, basically was teaching a class on databases and analytics and incorporated Alation software due to the recommendation of one of our customers at American Family. And we basically then got students collaborating around data, you know, writing SQL queries, and we realized that this software could be used, you know, sort of originally in the exact way that we had envisioned it as a method to teach people to be better analysts, to be better data scientists, to think about the world analytically. And so we realized that this would be a great way to just inform the world and to educate people on analytics and analytical thinking and analytical intuition. And so we started with that one institution. We have applications coming in from um, many other institutions to teach classes. And so this is something we're super excited about because the premise is to do in the social endeavor what we're doing in you know commercial enterprises, which is basically to get people to start asking questions more consistently and more you know thoughtfully and more scientifically. And so it's totally in line with our vision. And you know obviously we'd love to be able to do it more and more. Um, I love that, and I I love just the the sharing and the democratization of of knowledge, and also the service mindset that led to this decision. And it it reminds me of another decision that you made. You you ended up taking some time to volunteer in Mumbai for one of Mother Teresa's missions before you went to school at Columbia. Will you talk about that experience and and whether and how it's shaped who you are today? Yeah. So like many people, I took a gap year between high school and college and, you know, decided to go first to try a different school and realized that that wasn't the school for me. And Columbia was where I had set my heart on being in, and they'd accepted me, but only on a deferred basis. And so then during that gap year, you know, said, well, I guess what I could do is go to India and learn about my parents and my roots. And so, you know, spent about six months in India and decided that while I was there, I might as well serve other people and thought that that would be a part of my calling. I thought that maybe I would do something in the world of development economics, which is ultimately where I got my master's, but that was where I was you know, sort of interested in doing work. Then I went to volunteer at this mission, which was a chapter in Mumbai, and went to you know, help these orphans who were basically at various stages of, of health. And so in my case, I was assigned to feed these two children, both of whom had polio. Uh, and, you know, one was five and the other one, I think was seven. And they both, you know, as, as would happen with children who had, who would have polio, wouldn't be able to uh, feed themselves. And so I would take a straw full of gruel and I basically, you know, hold one end of the straw. So it would take the food in and I'd be able to drip the food into their mouths. And that was a super taxing experience. It was, you know, I I just, I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to comprehend their condition relative to my own. It was really hard work. And it was work that I realized that I just wasn't capable of doing. Like I did it at the time, 
But if I think about sort of all of the people who do that kind of volunteer work or even you know, nurses in hospitals or people who do that kind of service, yeah, it was very tough and, and really, really taxing. And it, it, I have just so much admiration for people who can do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that, that story I think is so, it's just so relevant on so many levels. There's part of it that, that's like, sometimes we do things because they're expected of us rather than because we're really called to do it. And, you know, and there might have been sort of like a social expectation for you to, to do this mission. But then I also think for you to just be really clear with yourself, this is not what you are meant to be doing on this earth and be okay with that. And one of the, one of the stories that prompts for me and some of the breakliners have heard this, when I graduated from business school, I followed a big crowd of my classmates to a consulting firm and I spent the next two years crying. <laughs> because I hated it so much. It was very expected of me to do this like high status, you know, highly compensated thing that everybody else was doing. And it just was not what I was interested in. Um, And it took me, yeah. No, it's like, I mean, I had the exact same experience. I mean, like every Mother Teresa volunteer, I then went on to become an investment banker as the first job that I had at a school. And, you know, very much following status and then went on to a private equity job again, very much following status and, you know, like took me a really, really long time. I would read these books called what would I do with my life or what should I do with my life and couldn't figure it out. And yeah, it's very tough. And, and you were, you You know, I hit rock bottom when I was at McKinsey. I, and you know, no shade on McKinsey. McKinsey's a wonderful place for people who want to be there. But I just cried all the time. I hated it. I just did not want to do that work. And I remember talking with my mom, Satyan, and she was like, is this how you want to live your life? <laughs> is this how yes, you want to wake up? <laughs> totally. And, um, and I was like, you're right, mom, no. And I just got to a point where I was so miserable that I had to make the choice that was right for me, finally. But I don't want breakliners or anyone else to have to hit that point of misery. You know, like your wife saying, you're not, I'm not gonna be married to a bitter old man. Like she could sort of like see the future, even if you couldn't see it, that like your current path was not the path for you. And I just, I I wonder how we can get to a point where we can make the decisions that are right for ourselves, independent of what other people think and do that faster with less heartache. Yeah, that is so challenging. The first thing that came to my mind was maybe you needed to hit that point of misery to realize that something had a break. But how do you, how would you, how could you have not gotten there or gotten there faster? I know, but you know what? I remember a moment when I was at um, Stanford and we were supposed to write down, the question was something like, in 10 years, how will you know that you've been a success? And I wrote down something. And as I was writing it, I was like, this is completely not true for me. But I, even in that private moment, I couldn't be truthful with myself about what I really wanted to do. I didn't have the courage yet to be truthful. I was still very much a conformist around what was expected. I had that same moment. I mean, I, after leaving, you know, cozy 
Tony Investment Banking job, went to a private equity firm and it was in San Francisco and it was on the top floor of this beautiful building in San Francisco and everything was white. And you walk in there and the only feeling that I had, you know, you would think you would feel that you'd arrived. And the only feeling that I had was just this imposter syndrome. Like I don't belong here and this is not where I'm supposed to be, but I couldn't admit it to myself. So of course I shook the job anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Breakliners learn from being Satyan. Don't do do what we do. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Satyan, thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to, you've mentioned your father a couple of times. You've mentioned your parents a couple of times. And and he sounded like somebody with just a lot of energy, a lot of chutzpah, a lot of creativity and ingenuity. And you've talked about him as someone that you idolize, someone you learned, you learned from. Um, And do you think about one or more of your biggest learnings that that you still carry with you today? Um, So many. I mean, I grew up watching him succeed and fail as an entrepreneur. Uh, There were so many moments where he did, he was, if I was somebody who looked at the world and found different and interesting things about it to fix, my dad was that on a scale and a level that was 10x what I did. He would walk around and every single thing that he did was a new business idea. Every single thing was something he could fix or change or do differently. Hmm. That, you know, got him into trouble too. Uh, And so there's this great Barack Obama quote, I think that, that that I, you know, I think kind of in some ways defines my life, which was that, you know, every man is trying to live up to the dreams of his father or atone for his sins. And I think so much of my behavior is both trying to be the entrepreneur that he was you know, supposed to be, but also on the flip side, also mm-hmm. trying to provide stably for a family, which was, I think was a big part of the struggle of not leaving earlier or not recognizing earlier that I was going to be an entrepreneur. And I think you know he worked so hard. I mean, he just worked all the time. And I think that tenacity and that work ethic and this night idea that no matter what happens, there's always a tomorrow and there's always another day to fight were, were ideas that I saw and just learned from. Mm-hmm. I love I love that quote. Um, okay, last couple of questions for me, and then I'm gonna turn it over to the breakliners. And um, I, you're, you've built this company, you're, you all are on this amazing trajectory. It's one of the most exciting companies that was that has been born in Silicon Valley in the last 10 or so years. And, and yet you've also talked about some of the, the struggles and the, the hard phases that you had to push through. Any other pieces of advice that you have for the Breakline community, folks who are at various stages of of building their careers in the tech sector? You had this perspective from Oracle where you you had a big job at Oracle and you were there for almost 10 years. And now again, as the CEO of a fast growing startup, with both of those sort of twin perspectives, lessons learned that you would like to impart to our community. Yeah, I, I think all of you are at such interesting junctures in your lives and your careers. And there are so many different options and so many different things that bright people like you can pursue. And the best bit of career advice it, that I got was not even something that I got 
directly or personally, but it was from a stage talk that Elizabeth Gilbert did. So Elizabeth Gilbert, if you don't know her, wrote this book, Eat, Pray, Love, uh, which I haven't read, but, but she gave this amazing talk and she basically got up on stage and it was after she had written that book and she kept on giving these talks about following your passion. And so she'd get up on stage and she'd say, you know, if you are going to be who you need to be, then just follow your passion. And then somebody, after she had gotten home from one of her talks, came and wrote her an email and said to her, Elizabeth, I've been trying to follow my passion, but I don't even know really what that is. And I keep on trying. And I wonder if I'm just a degenerate human being because I keep on trying to follow my passion, but I can't find it or follow it. And I don't know what that is. And her response, I think, was really magical. She said, well, that's amazing. Like, that's an amazing life. If all you do is try to find different things that you're excited about or interested in, then even if you don't find that one thing, you can at least follow your curiosity and you can follow things that are interesting in your life. And maybe at some point, if you pull on that thread, you might find something or you just learn about a million things and either way, you've had a fulfilling life. And I think just having the bravery to keep on getting up and trying again and to keep on trying to do things that are interesting to you and just yes. iterating to learn what you did from the last time, like that's a great life no matter how you frame it. So just try. Mm, I love that so much. And I, I, I can't remember who wrote it, but I saw this post on LinkedIn that I really loved. And it was someone who was like, I, I don't need the, the shiny view of you. I don't need the perfect image of you. Like I'd actually really like to see the sweat and the, and the tears and the blood and the, the stumbles. That's what I think is so inspiring that you can fail and have the courage to get up again and try again. It's the getting up that is so astounding, you know, to, to fellow humans. Yeah, that's, there's that, the difference between the big shot and the little shot is the little, the big shot kept on shooting or, or something <laughs> like that. Like, you know, that. Yeah. With, I am curious. So um, Ben Horowitz, the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz has said, don't follow your passion, follow what you're good at like do what you're good at. And he described himself, you know, as being passionate about rap music and really wanting to be a rapper and actually trying to rap and being terrible at it. <laughs> and then realizing what he was actually good at was building businesses and investing in entrepreneurs. What do you think about, about that? Like that, 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 that sort of alternate way of encouraging people to, to you know, explore a path to success. I don't know if I totally agree with him. I mean, Ben is obviously an accomplished investor and entrepreneur. There's this Japanese concept of ikigai. I don't know, like many of you might have seen it, but it, there's these concentric Venn like circles, and the idea is that you reach happiness when your you know sort of values and vision intersect with the craft that you enjoy, intersect with how much you can get paid, which intersects with. I think there was one other thing like uh, whatever it, it doesn't really matter but the but the point is there's like all of these little possibilities of intersection and most people in their life don't have the privilege of getting it all right and getting it all right at the same time mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it really depends on what your circumstances are mm -hmm. sometimes you just need to get paid and sometimes uh -huh. you can follow what you really love to do and sometimes you 
can't. And sometimes you're a person that if all you want to do is rap and that's the only thing your psychology allows you to do, even yeah. if you suck at it, you just have to go do it. I wish there were a clean answer, but yeah. you just have to honor yourself. I think, I, I don't know. You just have to honor yourself. I think that's a fabulous way to, to think about it. And I also really appreciate Satyan that you don't pretend that there is a clean answer. We actually have to apply some critical thinking to these decisions. Um, and I also really appreciate the practicality. When right before we got on the line with all of you, Satyan and I were talking about one of the one of the most optimistic insights I feel that I've had in my career is that it's under my control at all times. You know, I can decide at any time to do the thing that I want to do and I can go do that. And it takes a lot of pressure off. It takes a lot of the angst away when when you just kind of know it's my ship, you know, to steer and to to sail, but I also, Satyan, <clears throat> as a working mom, I sometimes get that question about balance and how do you do it all and blah, blah, blah. And my version of practicality is I don't do it all. You know, I like what I really care about is sustainability and prioritization. I prioritize, I prioritize the things that are most important to me and I get to those and I get to them at a pace that I can keep up for a long time. And I don't worry about other things that aren't as important to me. So I, I just appreciate the practicality. I think it's so crucial for us to keep that in mind as we build our careers. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Well, we have a question from Josh. Big question for you, Satyan. He said, what is the future of data? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I won't. You know, data to me is this object. So maybe I'll start by just talking about its relationship to people, which I care about much more than I care about data. I think data is a means to an end. And I think that we live in this world, right, where the people who have access to data and the people who have access to understanding data have this enormous power, right? And so you look inside of Facebook, which you can quibble with, uh, you can do more than quibble with. I mean, I think a lot of what they've been exposed to do are just horrible stuff. But that doesn't mean that everybody that has data has to act in this exploitative, nefarious way. But it, wouldn't it be amazing if more people, if everybody had access to a whole bunch of data? And I think the future of people is that more people will have access to understanding it and analyzing it and leveraging it to have some form of power. And so I think knowledge um, abhors, um, um, you know, a vacuum or, or you know, the, the, you know, being contained. And, and I think we will get to a place where more and more people have the ability to access and understand more and more information. It doesn't feel like that all the time today, but I think that that's the sort of, if you look at the internet and the trends of where we're going, I think that's going to be something that happens. And so I think the future of people with data is just that more people will understand it and will have the availability to access it and use it and leverage it and to change the world in their own ways. Mm hmm And Caitlin has a question. She's asking, what keeps you up at night? Raising good kids. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I think I, I think I think that's and you know, and happy kids and kids that are safe, like that's probably the the number one thing. I think the other is just, you know, am I making the right decisions with people? in the company. I mean, so much of what a CEO does is select the team and motivate the team 
I, I, the third thing is probably then, am I making the right decisions as far as strategy goes? But honestly, that's a distant third, just because the other two things are the things that, you know, have the most tangible effect and, you know, are the ones that just like people are messy and like, I'm not sure if my emotions are always in the right way. So I don't know. I just struggle with all of that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting that what keeps you up at night is the human element. And you, and you just said that, you know, people are more important to you and it is, it's our, it's the, our emotional life and our connections to other people and our interactions with other people. I hear from CEOs over and over again, saying that's the hard stuff. And particularly for me, because I think I'm so cerebral and so introverted that it, I don't think it's a skill that comes perfectly naturally to me. And so there are so many people who are just naturally people, people, and I certainly, I, I can, and I can, I love engaging, but, but I also need my own time and space. And so just getting that balance right is, is really challenging. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and prioritizing your, your own mental and emotional health so that you can be strong enough to engage in, in those ways. I'm also very introverted, Satyan. And I remember early in my career, when I was at McKinsey, a partner said to me, you got to speak. Like you gotta, you gotta get in the ring and speak. And that was really hard as a shy person, as a reserved person to like really put yourself out there. It's an additional hurdle to be mindful of. Particularly for, particularly for women, I think. Yes, uh, yes. I am in so many conversations where, I mean, just this morning, I had a fantastic woman who I work with super bright, super thoughtful, send me a Slack message about a question that I might ask. And my response was, well, just ask it. And mm -hmm. I think that self-editing is, mm -hmm. some people need to edit themselves more, frankly. So, so it's also the case that it can go too far in the other direction, but yeah. This just happened where I was, I asked one of my teammates, I said, do you know the answer to this question? And she said, no. And I said, it's this. And she said, I was about to say that. And I was like, girl, you need to say it. Uh, Cause the dude next to you is going to say it. So like, you got to get yourself in the ring. Yeah. I love that. And thank you for being supportive of your female colleagues. So Zane has a question. You, you have this, so you've had these twin experiences of working for one of the, the biggest brands, the largest companies in the world, Oracle, and then also founding your own company and building it from the ground up. Do you have general advice about, hey, a big company experience might be the ideal experience for you, or a startup or growth company experience might be the right one for you? How would you encourage people to sort of think about the trade-offs or the different ways in which they can learn and grow in those very different environments? Yeah. I'm not sure that I would necessarily recommend. I think, it, I think some of it depends on your life circumstance and how much stability you need. Smaller companies will generally give you the ability to learn more and learn faster because in a smaller company, you just have more surface area that you've got to cover for any given role within the company. For me, I was in a circumstance where you know, Jigna was working, but she was working part-time. She had some, she had a back problem at the time. And so we needed to be in a place where we had a lot of stability. And I felt emotionally, I needed to be in a place where I had a lot of stability. 
Oracle was phenomenal despite, you know, I think all of the external reputational, you know, areas of how, what kind of a place it is to work. You learn the enterprise software industry back, like backwards and forwards, you learn it completely. And so what Oracle gave me was the ability to learn an industry, which I then was able to become a quote unquote innovator in. And without that context, I would have never learned it. But I think it really depends on your own circumstance and what you're looking for. Uh, optimize for your own level of need and security. And so if you want need, if you need a lot of security, big companies are a great place to be. But if you can take a little bit of risk um, mm -hmm. and have the ability to choose a team that's smaller, that's there's nothing like it. Hmm. That's really interesting. It reminds me of um, Nima Gamsari, the CEO of Blend. <clears throat> and he said his thought process when he was starting Blend, he didn't want to look back on his life and see that he had prioritized security of some basic foundation that he had built over going after something huge that he had a chance to create. Yeah, and I think that's a great perspective to have if that's a perspective that you wanna have. I was working with somebody who was in a support role to me for many years and she's somebody who I developed a really, really close relationship with and she had two kids at home. And she said to me, Satyan, this is like your passion and your calling, but I have two kids at home and this is not my passion and my calling. Mm -hmm. And her passion, her calling were the two kids at home. And for her, that security in her career role gave her the ability to do the thing that she needed to do at home. So mm -hmm. I, everybody's not an entrepreneur. And I, and I just, I think everybody needs to think differently and appropriately for themselves. I'm so glad that you said that. Because I think FOMO is a real thing and just the angst of like, but that person's doing it. Isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? And just being centered in your own choices. Yeah. And by the way, I was also very FOMO when I was starting the company. I think mm -hmm. it's so easy to look back having had some level of success and say, oh, I didn't care about those things, but I totally cared about those things. And yeah, but, but I guess the point of relating all of this is that it does like, there's no easy answers and that that stuff isn't, um, that stuff doesn't necessarily take you to the right places at all times. Mm -hmm. um, I love, I just appreciate and love how transparent you are and the fact that you're not trying to wrap up everything in a bow. It is messy. It's a mess. And you got to be tough enough and resilient enough to navigate through it and know what you want. There's a story uh, that Ashley is hoping that you'll tell about working in a conference room in the early days of the company to create the, the mystique or the impression that elation was already kind of legitimate and on stable ground. Will you tell us that story of your very early days of founding the company? Yeah, it, well, not totally intentional, but the, a friend of mine uh, gave me some advice, which was that I should go work it was a successful entrepreneur. And he said, you should go work out of a venture capitalist office, because if you did, then you might actually get this halo effect that people would think that you could actually raise money, whether or not you actually had. And so interestingly enough, a person that I knew from high school at the time, wasn't even friends with a guy named Chris Farmer, he saw that I was going to go leave Oracle and said, well, why don't you just hang out here? And Chris and I didn't know each other very well. It had been like, 20 years since we had talked to each other, uh, but I did. And then having done that, interestingly enough, when I went and trolled LinkedIn to find my co-founders, I'd get them all together and I'd get them together at this, you know, VC office. And these were two Google engineers with PhDs and 
a guy with a master's from Stanford uh, who also happened to be doing NLP work on Siri. And they all came together and they're like, oh, well, I guess he may not know anything technical, but maybe he can get some money. And so, you know, the perception in this case of both being able to bring these people together, but also get them into a conference room at a venture capitalist ended up allowing them to believe that we could make something happen, which, you know, ultimately was true, but obviously that's hilarious and just so much a part of those early days when perception can be reality. Um, Casey has a question. She, she said, Alation was mentioned in a recent article in Business Wire and the headline said, research reveals 74% of CFOs don't have the right investment approach for data and analytics. Why are people ignoring data? I don't think they're ignoring data necessarily. I just don't necessarily think people always understand it. Mm-hmm. I think that when people think about data and analytics, they think about the end product of what data and analytics might bring them. So they think about reports or they think about metrics or they think about insights or AI, but they don't always think about investing in the infrastructure and the sort of substructure and more actually critically the human uh, sort of intelligence, a lot of the data literacy aspects of how do you train people to use data? How do I get people to think about using data more often in their day jobs? And so often what they'll do is they'll invest in the bright, shiny object at the end of the day, but all of the infrastructure that it takes to get to that um, tends to mean that those objects are short-lived because Mm -hmm. they don't have an infrastructure, but the human infrastructure and the technical infrastructure to deliver that sort of uh, outcome time after time. And, And so I think what ends up happening is people just prioritize relative to what they know, not necessarily mm-hmm. what they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And are people willing to say, I don't understand this? I think the, I think the best ones are. I think the, the yeah. great ones are, right? I think, I think any great leader who, I think a lot of leadership starts with saying, look, I'm going to go find something or somebody, somebody who knows way more about this topic than I do and put them in a position where they can succeed. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think a lot of great leaders do that. And I think now that's probably happening less and less in the world just because there's so many returns to having more insights and knowledge than the next company next to you. And so I think competitively, the pressure is to basically innovate, which comes from data. And insights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to try to squeeze in two more questions in the time we have. The first is from um, Diane, who's asking, in the early days, were there pivotal decisions or moments that enabled the company to succeed? Like when you look back on those, those sort of like ups and downs and the volatility of the early days, are there like a couple key wins that, that you reflect on as, well, that was, that was the moment where we know we were going to be, we knew we were going to be okay. We knew we were going to thrive. Um, I think winning our first early customer and getting Mm -hmm. them to sign was for any business, but certainly for us, because it launched us directly from having zero revenues to having six figures or seven figures of revenues, like almost overnight. Mm -hmm. So that was a really big pivotal moment. Interestingly though, also losing customers was pivotal. Mm -hmm. I remember when we raised our series A investment, we had just lost a really big customer, you know, it was, uh, well, it was a trial and Walmart was the company that we were trialing with and they wanted to buy the software from some really small amount of money. And we said no, and then offered it back to them. 
for another amount, they said no. And that was a really emotionally tough thing, but it led mm -hmm. us to focus, you know, but it's hard to, I think, say that any particular decision really ended up being the right thing. I think the biggest and most important thing was my co-founders and the people that helped build the company in the early days to set the culture that we had. That probably was honestly the most consequential thing. Hmm. Amazing. Thank you. And Satyan, you are launching a podcast called Data Radicals. And I'd love for you to talk to us about what, what is it going to be about thematically? Why are you launching it and where can we find it? Yeah, we, in our vision statement, have this idea of building this curious and rational world. And I think there's these people inside of companies who purchase elation and want to build a data culture inside of their own companies. And so often they have backgrounds in technology. Sometimes they have backgrounds in data. Sometimes they don't even have backgrounds in either. And they have background in the humanities, but they're trying to drive a cultural change within their organization. Hmm. And they're trying to get more people to use data within their organizations. And that's, there's a lot of sort of science there, but there's also a lot of art. How do you hmm. build cultural change? How do you convince people to think differently? How do you convince people to, instead of using their gut, use data? And so that's really tough work to go do in you know any circumstance and certainly to do so in many of our customers cases inside of companies with hundreds of thousands of people really mm -hmm. really challenging to do and so this podcast basically is an exploration of that question how do we get more people to become data radicals how do we get more people to think using data and using science and so i have the privilege of or i'm going to have the privilege of of, of interviewing all of these guests from the social sciences to you know, computer science and technical fields to people who have built data companies, to people who have built data initiatives within companies. And the idea is just to be able to share stories and ideas around how using data could be better for everybody and how we could do it more and more. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking about change agents and, and obviously that's what, what Breakline is in, in a totally different field, but I'm mm -hmm. so passionate about telling the stories of change agents, especially as you described these folks inside of these massive organizations, pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. It takes so much energy and so much courage to do that. I'm delighted to hear that you're telling their, their stories. Yeah. And if you know you have a tribe and that somebody's walked this path before, it's so much easier to try to walk the path yourself. And yes. so anyways, the podcast is called Data Radicals. It'll be available on Apple and Spotify. And um, if you want to hear more about it, then just look me up on Twitter. It's S-A-T-Y-X is my Twitter handle at Satyx. So. Satyam, what a treat to have you with us for the last hour. Thank you so much for carving out the time. It's been really, really fun to hear more about you and Elation, and we're just wishing you and, and your team all the best. Thank you, Bethany, for allowing me to share my stories and crazy ideas, and so I uh, really appreciate the time. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. Um, it helps us continue to share this great content. Uh, and most importantly, we just love to hear what, you, what you'd have to say about uh, some of the content that we're putting out there. So 
Um, please join us again here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week.